all of us have in our lives things that we strive for. For some of us, it's good health. For others, it's a fulfilling family life. And for many, it's achievement in a profession. The late Steve Jobs strove for excellence in his product and personal fulfillment in the process. He said several years ago at Stanford University these words. He said, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. There's a lot to recommend in that statement. And as one who greatly appreciates my Apple products and the role that Jobs played in making them what they are, I'm deeply grieved that he, as far as I can tell, died without ever placing his faith in Jesus Christ to forgive his sins and to grant him eternal life. He claimed Buddhism as his faith. What a sad thing it is to gain the whole world and to lose your soul. But a statement about not letting the noise of other people's opinions drown out your own inner voice, that's a profound statement. Jobs was all about excellence. His death this week led me to think about what it is that Christians should strive for. Is it legitimate for a believer in Jesus Christ to strive for excellence in a business or a profession? Is it legitimate for us to work toward being the best mom or the best dad that we can possibly be or the best baseball coach for our kids' little league team? Is it legitimate for us to strive to be the best accountant that we can possibly be or whatever it is that we do? Is it legitimate for us to strive for excellence? Two weeks ago, yesterday, a very lovely lady came to me in Bristol, England and asked just that question. Is it legitimate, she asked, based upon what you just got through teaching us, based upon this whole idea of eternal security that once salvation is gained, it cannot be lost, that we have this relationship with Jesus Christ that's positional. We have an experiential one as well, but we have this positional relationship in Christ that can't be lost. And if anything happened to you right now, you'll be in heaven. The next breath you'll take will be in heaven of celestial air. Given that, why should we bother with excellence? Is it even something to strive for? My answer was, of course it is. Of course it is. It's legitimate for Christians to strive for excellence in everything that we do. And the reason should be not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. Who do you think gifted you in the first place? with whatever talent or ability that you have. Of course we should strive for excellence. If you're a football player, you should be the best football player you can be for the glory of God. If you're a CPA, you should be the best CPA you can be for the glory of God. Christians should not be sloppy in anything. Just because we have salvation wrapped up, it doesn't mean we're to sit on a lily pad like a frog watching the world go by. That's not our role. Whoever told us we should be sloppy and just, just cruise, put it on cruise control for the rest of our lives? That's not why we're here. God doesn't leave us here just to take up oxygen. No. If that was the case, he'd take us home as soon as we were saved. Salve evangelism would be a little harder, I think. Wouldn't be as many people at Billy Graham concerts. Come forward, accept Christ, and you'll die soon. 
No, there's a reason why you're left here. And it's to do whatever we do for the glory of God. As good as we can possibly do it. We have that responsibility. It must surely grieve the Holy Spirit to see believers who are lazy in the workplace. Grieves me to see believers who are lazy in the workplace, especially when they have a fish sticker on their car. It grieves me to see people cheat on their time cards in the workplace when they have a KCB sticker on the back. I'm sure KCB would love for you to take that sticker down if that's the way you're going to be. If you're going to represent Jesus Christ, then let's represent Him well in everything. It must grieve the Holy Spirit when He sees believers who take for granted the talent that they've been given. And I think all of us have a talent. It's not the same talent, but all of us have some sort of talent. And I'm not talking about spiritual giftedness here. That's a subject that we'll bring up later in our study of 1 Corinthians. I don't know where we got this idea that it's okay for us to be sloppy. Yes, this is not our home. I get it. I get that. I understand it. But when I'm staying in a hotel, I don't trash it like some drug-crazed rock star just because that's not my home. I still take care of it. In fact, I don't know about you, but when I'm in a hotel, I usually make sure it's left pretty clean. I even make the bed. But that's just me. I kind of pick it up. I wash the counter off. I don't want to see how sloppy I am. That's something for behind closed doors. Only my wife knows for sure. We represent Jesus Christ in this world, and he expects us to represent him well in everything that we do. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his primary calling in life. But there were times when he made tents on the side to support himself when accepting support from a particular group wasn't appropriate at that time. I seriously suspect that Paul was not a sloppy tent maker. I suspect that the tents he made were pretty high quality. And I feel confident that he did that tent-making work to the best of his ability. He didn't want to diminish the message that he was preaching on Sunday by the tent that he made on Thursday. Can you imagine someone in Corinth inviting someone to church there and hearing, well, I sure hope that guy Paul preaches better than he makes tents. The one I've got right now has so many holes and I've got buckets all over the place. And he overcharged me to boot. I doubt the Apostle Paul ever overcharged anybody. We need to do the same thing as believers in Jesus Christ. He didn't want to diminish the message of Jesus Christ by living a sloppy life. I once knew a man who told everyone that he met about Jesus, but had such a bad reputation in our community, in both his business and his personal life, that people wanted nothing to do with him and nothing to do with his faith and especially nothing to do with the church that he attended, which I happened to pastor. I was embarrassed when he would go out and invite people to our church because his reputation was so bad. He was so offensive to people, both business-wise and personally. Last time I saw him, 3 o'clock in the afternoon at a Texaco station in Pasadena on Spencer Highway stoned out of his mind, ridiculing me about the church in front of a lot of other people. That's sloppy. That's not a proper use of our ambassadorship. He's a Christian, but he's a poor representative of Jesus Christ. In fact, he's the only Christian that attempted to discourage me from going into ministry. 
Some unbelievers tried to discourage me. He told me I was absolutely crazy, but he's the only Christian that did. And when he tried to discourage me from going into ministry because of his personal life and his business life, I thought, well, this must be the right thing to do. <laughs> I, I'm, ex- I'm going exactly where I need to be if he's trying to discourage me from doing it. And I'm not trying to pick on him. And I'm not going to ever give you his name, so don't ask me afterwards. <laughs> his name's not the point. The point is that the way we live our lives does matter for our Christian testimony. It matters greatly. A friend of mine several years back, and I were talking about Jesus Christ. She happened to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And I I just about had her. We talked for weeks, and I just about had her. Or at least the Holy Spirit just about had her, not me. Then her house burned down. And she was so overwhelmed with kindness from the people from her Mormon church that I never got a shot at her again. Love is the greatest apologetic. And of all people, Christians should exercise that in abundance. It's expected as followers of Jesus Christ that we'll do the best we can with whatever God gave us. We have two functions in this life. I've already mentioned one of them, our ambassadorship. That's where we represent Jesus Christ to others. But we have another one. That's our priesthood. That's where we represent, we represent ourselves to Jesus Christ. And there shouldn't be any disconnect between the two. My friend that I mentioned to you a minute ago, and he is my friend, he had a great disconnect because he thought his priesthood was working quite well, thank you very much. But there was such a disconnect between what he believed and the way he acted that it was quite unlovely. Speaking of commencement addresses, Steve Jobs did one at Stanford six years ago. Picture yourself in the city of Colossae, not Corinth, but Colossae for just a moment. And let's say you're in the spring of A.D. 63. And the University of Colossae is having its commencement service on a wonderful, beautiful spring day in one of their outdoor amphitheaters for their graduates. And the Apostle Paul is the speaker. I wonder what the Apostle Paul would have said was the most important thing in his life. That's what Steve Jobs did at his address to Stanford. By the way, he never finished college. I think he only went one semester. What would Paul have said? Well, what was important to him? It might have gone something like this. And we proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we might present every man mature in Christ. And for this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power which mightily works in me. I appreciate Steve Jobs. I I really do. But this purpose statement is a whole lot more powerful than not letting the noise of other people's opinions drown out our own inner thoughts. As an apostle, Paul strove to help Christians mature in their relationship with Jesus Christ. The term translated, by the way, in Colossians 1.29, which is where I got that speech from, is the same term that we get our English word agonize from. That's where we get the term strive in Greek, agonize. It means to put forth extreme effort to endeavor with strenuous zeal, to fight, to struggle. For this reason also, this purpose also, I labor, striving according to his power. Paul fully understood that God provides the power for such an endeavor. But at the same time, he recognized that he had to put forth some effort as well. The empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit should not be misunderstood to mean 
that we put forth no effort at all. That's not Christianity. The whole let go and let God thing, that's a, that's a good idea, but it doesn't mean that we do nothing, that we stay in bed and expect God to work through us. Doesn't happen. You've got to get up, get dressed, and get out there. It doesn't mean we do it on our own empowerment, but it does mean we've got to get up and get out there. In fact, the first word of the Great Commission is, Go! It producing mature believers is what the Apostle Paul dedicated his life to. And it makes sense to me that we should dedicate ourselves to becoming mature in the faith. After salvation, that's what. We don't sit there like that frog on a lily pad watching the world go by, waiting for our time to be called up to heaven. We should do something with the time that we have while we're here. As those words come out of my mouth, it almost seems unnecessary to say them. It almost seems like a waste of time to say them. Doesn't it go without saying that all Christians deeply desire a maturing relationship with Jesus Christ? Doesn't that go without saying? I wish it did. But it doesn't. Sadly, it doesn't go without saying. Far too many of us are the recipients of eternal life but are far less serious about growing in grace afterwards. And that's a shame. Remember, the Great Commission has two parts, evangelism and calling people to committed discipleship to Jesus Christ. Or, to put it another way, to maturity in Jesus Christ. Let's look back now at a passage that we have heavily invested in, and we're going to invest a couple more weeks in it even after this. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-16. through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Verses 6 through 9 read this way. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom as in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. And then verse 9, But just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen, nor the ear has heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. The passage starts out with, an, with a, a we, yet we do speak wisdom. The we at the beginning of verse 6 refers not just to Paul. Because as we've already seen, this is not Paul's message. This is God's message that's being spoken through the Apostle Paul. This we is an editorial we for all who speak the truth. Not just all the apostles, but for all the elders and pastors of that time. It was in the infantile church. But for all who spoke the, church, the, the truth. This is the empowerment, not just for Paul, but for all of us. And that means for you and for me. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. In our previous study in 1 Corinthians, and I know it's been three weeks ago, so I want to remind you, we considered the significance of the term spirituality. The title of that sermon was, What is Spirituality? We indicated that Paul begins by using this term spirituality, or spiritual, in chapter 2 in a more general sense than he'll use it later. He starts general and then moves to more specific. In chapter 2, a spiritual person is simply one who appraises all things, yet is appraised by no one. In other words, someone who has the ability, because of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit in their life, to understand the things of God. 
all believers have the Spirit. And so in this sense, in the 1 Corinthians chapter 2 sense, all are spiritual. All Christians are spiritual in this sense. Now, hold on, there's more. That's not the end of his teaching on it. But at least in a general sense, since all of us have the Holy Spirit, all of us are spiritual. Now, I want you to notice in verse 6, Paul uses the term that we've been discussing this morning, and that's the term mature. The Greek term is teleos. It's the same term that Paul used in Colossians chapter 128, the passage I quoted a moment ago. Teleos means brought to its end, finished, completed, mature. It's related to the term that Jesus used on the cross, tetelestai, which is translated, it is finished, from the Greek verb teleo. In this context, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the ideas, the concepts of spirituality and maturity are closely related. Actually, we're going to find, as we go through 1 Corinthians, that the concepts of spirituality and maturity are closely related in almost every context they're found. It's important to note that here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is not dividing up Christians into two groups. One that can understand the deep things of God and another that cannot understand the deep things of God. That's not either spirituality or maturity in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Again, some of that's going to come up later, but not here. He starts off with a foundation that every Christian has. All of us have the ability to understand the wisdom of God because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. The most basic use of the term telios might even be, in chapter 2, complete. It's the same word. It's the same word translated mature, other places complete, other places perfect. But in chapter 2, we might even want to use the English word complete. We're all complete in that sense. We all have as much of the Holy Spirit as we're ever going to get. Lewis Perry Chafer used to say, when you're spiritual, you don't get more of the Spirit. It's the Spirit getting more of you. So it's not like the Spirit floods us. We submit and the Spirit gets more of us to work with. So you see in chapter 2, again in chapter 2 I stress, believers are spiritual and believers are complete. In just a few moments as we close up our time today, I'll discuss in a little more detail what it means to be complete in its more full sense, to what it means to be mature. But for right now, Paul's starting off that we all have a foundation, we can all understand these spiritual truths. The idea is, the application is, none of us have any excuse None of us have any excuse to be ignorant about spiritual things. We have no excuse. Especially here we have no excuse. In the United States, in Texas, in Houston. People say that Dallas is the buckle on the Bible belt. I think Houston might be the buckle on the Bible belt. We do not lack for biblical teaching here in our city. It is readily abundant. In churches... On the radio, some television, I, I would avoid a lot of television, but churches, radio, on the computer. We have no excuse for not knowing the Word of God. It is available, and we are empowered to do it. That's what he's saying in chapter 2, when he says, But we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. So he goes on to describe the wisdom that he is speaking about in, these, in this trifold way. It's not like the wisdom of the Corinthian culture. It's not the same thing. 
It's not understandable by the Corinthian culture. And it is wisdom that existed before creation, and it's wisdom that exists for our benefit. Now, that's a mouthful, but that's what these verses say. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. As opposed to these guys who are passing away, God's wisdom is permanent. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. It's not like the wisdom of the Corinthian culture. It's not understandable by the Corinthian culture. And it's wisdom that existed before creation, and I hope you caught it, for our glory, which means for our benefit. When Jesus taught, he didn't teach to educate himself. He already knew it. He taught to help us. The Bible is not for God's benefit, it's for our benefit. He's always known this. It's for our benefit. He did use the term mystery in verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. This idea of mystery here means that it can only be understood through God's revelation and through God's empowerment. This is not something that the philosophers of Paul's day would have ever thought of. A crucified Messiah? Matter of fact, they ridiculed that idea. Then in verse 9, Paul is going to paraphrase a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, a passage from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 3, emphasizing that there are blessings in store for those who love God that are beyond comprehension, especially without divine enablement. It's hard enough for us to comprehend them, but without divine enablement, no way. Listen to this. You've heard these words before. But just as it is written... Things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. That's an encouraging passage. God has some things in store for us that are so great that words can't hardly even describe them. Sometimes I think that's why there's so little, really percentage-wise, there's so little written in the Word of God about heaven. It is so great that words can't really do it justice. Oh, there are a few things, you know, about the streets of gold and, and all that, but there's some better phrases that, speak, that will speak about us being in a place of no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death, the old things have passed away. But really, if you look at it, there's not a lot in the Bible about heaven other than the fact that Jesus is there and that's where I want to be. You know, the best thing about heaven is that that's where Jesus is. And we'll be there there with him face to face. In our previous lesson, we said that genuine biblical spirituality involves three factors. Regeneration, which means that in order to be spiritual, you've got to be born again. Second, taking advantage of the ministries of the Spirit, which include teaching, guiding, assuring, praying, the exercise of spiritual gifts, Warring against the flesh and the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the third thing we said three weeks ago, the third factor in spirituality was growth, which takes time. It involves learning the Word and acting on what has been learned. This is one of those places where maturity and spirituality intersect. In our passage today, we learned that there is a sense in which every believer is mature, talaios, Perhaps complete might be a better understanding here. Every believer is complete. 
even if they're not currently walking in obedience to God's command, they are still complete in the chapter 2 sense. They are teleos. They are eternally saved, and they can understand God's wisdom. And we're all in that boat. We're all in that situation, which means we all have the same potential. I realized that I wasn't born with the same potential as some other people have. I, I could never be a professional quarterback, say, like Aaron Rodgers. It doesn't matter how many quarterback camps I might have gone to, matter how much coaching I had, what kind of diet I went on. I'm not going to be that kind of quarterback, or that Peyton Manning is. I can't sing like Pavarotti, and don't amen that, anybody that sits over here. <laughs> and it wouldn't matter how many voice lessons I had. I'm not gifted in that way. I, I don't even have that potential, I don't believe. Because there are certain physical limitations. But we all have the same potential to glorify God because we are all spiritual in the sense that we are all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're all complete in the sense that we all have trusted Jesus Christ. We all have eternal life. We're all empowered to understand these things. This is basic, and this is the way Paul starts. He's going to expand it in future chapters, but he starts with basics. We're all blessed with the same potential to glorify God. Billy Graham ministered to millions of people during the course of his ministry. And we would say, wow, what potential God gave him to glorify himself. You have the same potential within you, according to chapter 2, to glorify God that Billy Graham had. The same potential. Not in the same way, but in whatever area of life God has placed you. You have the same potential. You can be the Billy Graham of San Jacinto Elementary School in Deer Park. And I'm not talking about just evangelizing. I'm talking about doing your job as unto the Lord where people have a problem. They come to you. And they say, you've got something that I need. Can you help me? So there are those factors, regeneration, taking advantage of the ministries, and growth. So the concept of maturity is closely related to spirituality no matter where we find it. But as with spirituality, there is more. Our position in Christ should lead to a deepening relationship with Him, an experience of Him. And that takes time. A new believer can be complete in Christ. Paul says they are. But new believers take time to mature in their relationship with Christ. But time alone is not going to mature any of us. Just because we've been a Christian 5, 10, 15, or 50 years, it doesn't mean that we've matured in that second sense of a deepening relationship. The British playwright Tom Stoppard quipped, Age is a very high price to pay for maturity. The ideal is to mature in our faith quickly. Maturity comes from learning God's Word and applying it to the circumstances of life. You can have been a believer for three years and be mature, and you can have been a believer for 30 and be immature. So it takes time, but time alone is not enough. Christian maturity in its fullest sense involves both learning and applying. Not in the sense of chapter 2, but in the fullest sense, we have to learn, apply, and grow. Learning alone, and watch as we finish up today, please don't miss this, learning alone will not mature the believer. And I say that as someone who's dedicated my life to teaching the Word of God, to help you mature. 
But learning alone won't do it. It could also be argued, though, that the believer will never maximize the potential I was speaking about a moment ago for their relationship with God and Christ and glorifying Him without learning. So learning alone won't do it, but you can't do it without learning. Sometimes God in His grace accelerates this maturation process by bringing suffering in our lives. We don't like that, but it really is a blessing. The circumstances in that case can and often are painful or when we call suffering. But they give us an opportunity to apply what we've learned in the flames of the fiery furnace. It's an opportunity for growth. As Christians, we should strive for excellence in every area of our lives. But first and foremost, we should strive for excellence in our relationship with our Creator and our Savior.